Today we're looking at Colossians 4, particularly verses 7 to 9, as your handout indicates. But I want us to get a sense of the entire context of what the Apostle is beginning to do here. So if you'll follow, beginning at verse 7, I'll read to the end of the chapter. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, also laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of, Laodicea, of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now, there is a pattern here in these last 12 verses of this letter. And as you think about what I just read, I wonder if you notice where the difference lies. There's a broader pattern here, and I'm wondering if you noticed it, or if not, if you re-scan that section, whether you can pick it up. All right, a clue is in verse 8, a clue that differentiates the patterning of this final unit. What is he doing with Tychicus and Onesimus? He's sending them. Where is he sending them? To Colossae. All right. So, verses 7 to 9 describe two individuals whom the Apostle is sending. Sending from where? 
from Rome because Paul is in prison. All right? Now, what about the rest of the names, beginning with verse 10? What's their location? They're in Rome, but are they being S sent? No. They're being, they're going to S stay. So, the apostle sending emissaries, couriers, fellow brethren, and the apostle having brethren remain, having faithful followers stay in his presence. So there's a distinct <clears throat> pattern of differentiation between verses 7 and 9 and verses 10 to 18. And the differentiation is based upon those whom the apostle sends forth and those who remain with the apostle in his present circumstance. This is an interesting paradigm. It has led to some speculation about the so-called apostolic parousia. That is, when the apostle sends forth someone, it is as Christ sends forth someone. As Paul the apostle has someone come to you, it is as Christ himself comes in his parousia. Now that may sound a little far-fetched. <clears throat> particularly if we think of the eschatological aspect of the parousia. But it is interesting that Paul uses language quite often in his epistles which refer to his children, his sons in the faith, particularly Timothy. And in sending forth his son, he is, of course, claiming to be his father in the faith. I'm not advocating this approach dogmatically. I'm fascinated by its potential because it folds the apostle and the disciples into the larger narrative of what is happening when Christ returns in his second arrival as well as his presence with us now by his spirit in his daily indwelling. Now, I'm not going to push that observation in this instance. But I do want you to know this different, notice this differentiation. Those whom the apostle sends forth as the sending forth of himself. It is the sending forth of Paul the apostle in these persons who go forth from his presence. And those who remain in his presence gathered about him even in his imprisonment. Now, before we begin to look more deeply into the names, and we're going to spend the remainder of our study on this epistle on these names, before we penetrate more deeply into these 12 names, which are the totality of the names in the conclusion of the epistle, let's ask a question, why? Why such a detailed and extensive list of names at the end of this Colossian letter? 
Now, with our digital technology, we know all about windows. We can bring certain windows up on our computers, multiple windows. We have here in this list of name a window. It is a window onto the network of the Apostle Paul. Yes, Paul networked. He was connected. He was interconnected. He interfaced with individuals, with churches, with communities. We have here then in these 12 names a window upon the world of the apostle. A window by which he interfaces personally and intersects regionally with Christian communities and individuals whom he has sent or who have been followers to churches that he has established or have been established by those others in the name of Christ. This is a network of information. It is a network of mutual communion and interrelation. It is a network of Paul's gospel expansion, the expansion and confirmation and validation of his message. And with respect to the epistle to the Colossians, we remind ourselves of what that message is. What is this message that the apostle has proclaimed and taught and written about according to the letter to the Colossians. It is the mystery of the gospel of Christ. And that mystery includes Gentiles as well as Jews, particularly Gentiles involving their union with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, These names are reminding us of the proclamation of that gospel which the apostle consistently emphasized. Consistently emphasized the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He proclaims death to sin in Christ's putting sin to death in his cross in history. He reveals in his epistles and in his preaching and proclamation the transition from life to death in Christ's rising to life from a dead tomb, from an open tomb of death in history. All of these names in Colossians 4 have been schooled in that mystery. They have been schooled in that reality that union with Christ by grace, that union with Christ by dying and rising with him, their participation in that union is a virtual certainty with the exception of Demas in verse 14, as we shall show subsequently. We are reminded then That being schooled in the mystery is one thing. Many are called. Participating or possessing the mystery is another thing. Few are chosen. Being instructed in dying and rising with Christ is one thing. Participating Identifying, possessing, dying, and rising with Christ is another. 
what the mind or the intellect or the rational faculty knows, the heart must embrace, or one is just going through the motions. The name Demas among Paul's entourage reminds us that Christ himself has a Judas among his entourage. Now, this is not just a network of names and not merely a window into the apostles' world, although it is that. It is a network of those trained, taught, promoting Paul's gospel, which is the gospel of the grace of Christ in the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. He makes that stunning claim that what he is proclaiming is nothing less than the very verbal gospel of the risen and glorified Son of the everlasting God. That is an astounding and offensive claim, if it is true. But if it is true, then it is certainly accurate and historically verifiable. He has not altered the gospel of Jesus as liberalism argues and promotes time and time again. He has not corrupted the pure message of the meek and mild servant of Nazareth. No. He is proclaiming the very same gospel that that Jesus gave to him by revelation on the Damascus Road and by years in the Arabian Desert. This gospel is an ecumenical gospel. It is open to all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongue, Jew and Gentile, in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. We have here a network of workers in the mission of extension and expansion of the gospel to the world of Paul's day and their own day. These are missionaries, if you will, in this list. We, too, are co-workers as we support that mission of the grace of the mystery of Christ to the world in our own day. A church without an interest in the mission of the mystery of Christ, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, a church without an interest in that message, that reality, that history, such a church is a dead church. It is no longer a church. It has become a social club. It has become a coffee clutch. It has become a community fellowship. It has become a way of escape, but it is not a church. The list of names given us in this chapter is an insight into the breadth and depth of Paul's missionary thrust and accomplishment. The widespread work of the Holy Spirit through preaching and teaching and testifying to the grace of God in Christ in the first century world. A proclamation which, according to the book of Acts, turned the world upside down. It is impossible for you to realize how fast Christianity spread because you live in a culture in which Christianity is common. But can you imagine how within the space of 50 years 
Christianity spread through the Mediterranean basin like a wildfire. You think that there were just these little individual churches in Philippi and Colossae and Ephesus and so on and so forth. There were hundreds of them. Hundreds of Christian communities, if not thousands of them. When Luke writes that statement about what the Thessalonian Jews had said in Philippi, that Paul was stirring up trouble and turning the world upside down, they weren't blowing smoke. They were telling the truth. Christianity was spreading through the Greco-Roman world with rapid fire. Colossians were not alone in experiencing the heat and warmth of that gracious gospel by the power of the flaming spirit of God. All right, now back to our outline. <clears throat> and to verses 7 to 9 in particular, well, we'll focus. Yes, question? And do I do I think that the spread of Christianity was moving rapidly? There are places where Christianity is still moving very rapidly in parts of Africa and Asia, even in Central America. Is it the same rapidity of that first Christian world? That's hard to that's hard to compare. But nonetheless, Christianity is advancing, in the the work of the gospel is still reaching people who have never believed. Did, did she say the Muslim world? I, I, didn't, I didn't hear her say the Muslim world. The world or the newsletter that we got? Oh, yes. <clears throat> yeah. uh, it is interesting that social media uh, that MRF, uh, Middle East Reform Fellowship, keeps us informed about. Uh, <clears throat> and incidentally, if you don't have access to MRF, uh, have your church asked to be put on the mailing list to receive copies of it and have it stuck in your bulletin as it's done here month to month. <clears throat> it's an excellent way of keeping up with what's happening with Muslim evangelism through the Internet, through social media, through the, through the cyber world. <clears throat> because, of course, it's safer for these individuals to listen and to hear the gospel that way on their uh, individual <clears throat> uh, uh, cellular device. So... Uh, there's a great encouragement now, particularly because of Victor Atala, who's the leader of the Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship. He was a former OPC minister, incidentally, that, that Victor's uh, uh, work is bearing a great deal of fruit in terms of response from individual Muslims who are weary of Muslim terrorism and looking for a, a gospel of, of true peace. Now, uh, having said that, um, it's, it's historically interesting for us to place in perspective the difficulty of breaking into Islam with the Christian gospel. Ever since the 19th century, when Sam Zwemer and others gave their lives to devote themselves to Muslim evangelism, the converts have been by the handfuls, not by the bucketfuls, or, or not, by the, the, not by the poolfuls. But <clears throat> there are interesting uh, because now of, of the internet, now because of social media, there are, there is penetration getting into Muslim countries which are closed to the gospel otherwise. So this, this is a, a tremendous blessing, uh, uh, you know, that 
now in, in a way that an individual couldn't have walked into those countries. It couldn't even take a Bible into some of those countries. Now these people can hear the Bible read in their own language. They can ask questions and have those questions answered by persons who are conversant in their own language and talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of the gospel and, and, and instruct them and train them even if they're interested in learning or being trained in, uh, in advancing or evangelizing their fellow, fellow Muslim friends. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that's uh, the, a very interesting aspect of our modern situation with respect to the Islamic world. It is spreading more now there than it ever has in history uh, to date. So that, that's wonderful cause for rejoicing. And as I said, that Murph newsletter keeps you informed of that. So something you can continue to pray about as you read that newsletter and realize, or even if you don't have the newsletter, you can, you can thank God that the Holy Spirit is at work in the Muslim hearts and bringing Muslims in a number of Muslim countries from Indonesia all the way to Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and so on and so forth into, into, uh, <coughs> Africa, et cetera. That they are, they are number of them turning to Christ in greater numbers than than uh, <coughs> we have seen in previous history. Well, that's a, that's a, that gives me a chance to make that comment about Murph, which I think uh, it, <coughs> it belongs to us in a real way because its founder and its modern le- its current leader, Victor Atala, was at one time a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. All right, now uh, to the outline again, and no concentrating on verses 7 to 9. Asking a question as you scan those verses, and I've kind of given you a clue about which verses to scan here. Uh, <clears throat> if you notice a structural paradigm in these verses. Now, when we're looking at structure, once again, we're looking at the Semitic mind and we're scanning or we're examining for recursive duplication, repetition. So what do you see in 7 and 9 that is repetitive? Record of activity. No, I'm looking for actual words. Well, he starts with brother and then ends with brother. All right, now brother is one word, okay? So that's that's one word you've got. What's the adjective in front of brother? Beloved, okay? So we have beloved brother in verse 7 and in verse 9. What else do we have that's duplicated? Faithful. The word faithful, very good. All right, now let's notice in verse 7, what is the order? The order is... Beloved brother plus or followed by faithful. Now what is the order in verse 9? Backwards? <laughs> Backwards. That's right, Chi. It's the reverse. Which is first? Go ahead, Chi. Which is first in verse 9 of what we looked at? Faithful is first and then followed by beloved brother. Now, what do we call that? 
Gee, what do we call that reversal? What's the label for that? Loretta will tell you. It is a chiasm, correct. It is a chiasm. Now, what does a chiasm do? Well, as Chi pointed out, it reverses or puts things kind of backward. But a chiasm is also a mirror device. It's a mirror reflection. So, the character of Tychicus and the character of Onesimus is a mirror reflection. And in fact, we have the very same words describing them. So Paul intentionally uses a chiastic structure here to reflect upon the character of Tychicus and Onesimus. They are beloved brothers who are faithful, faithful, beloved brothers. The reversal is is unto the integrity of the unit. So this is a subunit of the epistle intentionally constructed in order to commend Tychicus and Onesimus to the Colossians. All right, now, that would seem to leave verse 8 out of the structural pattern. Verses 7 to 9 have the chiasm, that is the reversal, like the Greek letter chi. And what about verse 8? Well, it's sandwiched between verses 7 and 9, isn't it? It's the in-between. It's like the icing in the Oreo cookie. It's the center of the chiasm. Why? Because he's sending them. These two faithful and beloved brothers are being sent. The action which the apostle is initiating is described as him sending them forth from his presence to the presence of the Colossian believers and also the Laodicean believers, as we'll note later on. But that eighth verse also contains another word. And it contains the phrase, encourage your hearts. One of the central features, then, of the mission, the task of these faithful and beloved brothers is to encourage the hearts of the Colossians. Paul is not sending them to discourage them, even though he's warning them about this insidious error which is creeping into their fellowship. He's already armed them to defend themselves against that in chapters 2 and 3. It has some of the, some of the elements of a kind of Judaism, in it also has a kind of element of Greco-Roman mysticism in it. Nonetheless, he has prepared them for that by this epistle, and he wants them to be encouraged in their hearts, in their souls, in their spirits, in their inner man, inner woman, as the case may be. Okay, He wants them to be stirred up to uh, love and serve and praise the Lord Jesus even more as a result of their understanding that chapter 3, their life is hidden with Christ in God. They have been joined to the life of Christ by that mystical union of faith 
and that life that Christ enjoys, namely eternal life, is a life that they have received as well as a gift, the gift of everlasting life by union with Christ Jesus, the risen and everlasting living Lord. All right, so there is a method to the apostle's rhetorical madness or literary madness here. He has done this in such a way as to make these three verses a very tight rhetorical unit. Now, there's something else to notice here. There's something that is common in all three of these verses. The language is not exactly the same in translation in your English text, but the Greek root, the Greek lemma, is the same. So that's the advantage of reading the Greek text here. Your eye will be caught by a word or <coughs> cognates, that is, related words, that come from the same root. Now, what would you guess those three words are? Not yet. Very good. Yes. Information, no, and uh, inform again in the New American Standard. They all come out of the Greek uh, word which does, which means to know or understand. <coughs> begins with gamma, noon, omega. That root begins in that way <coughs> from which we get uh, Gnostic, G-N-O, uh, the Gnostics were those that, divide, that denied that uh, <clears throat> there was common knowledge, there was secret hidden knowledge that uh, made you made you an initiate into the Christian religion. That put that aside. Here, Paul is is encouraging the Colossians to realize that they will receive knowledge, information understanding of what his situation is as he's commending himself in that uh, knowing or informative world, word, a uh, series of words uh, through Tychicus and Onesimus. Now this letter itself will be part of that information, part of that knowledge, part of the understanding he is attempting to communicate. In sending Tychicus and Onesimus with this letter, they are his couriers, if you will. In sending them with it, he's sending information about himself with them, some of which we can uh, we can deduce from the epistle itself, uh, most important of which was his uh, suffering and imprisonment in Rome. All right. The broad purpose here, in my opinion, is the apostle is drawing or folding the Colossian Christians into the apostolic narrative. Not only what is happening to him at present in Rome, but it was happening with Paul in Christ at present, and thus reflects 
on their union with the drama. Participation in his sufferings as participations in the sufferings of Christ, that very poignant and challenging statement that the apostle makes in chapter 1, verse 24, Colossians, filling up the measure of Christ's suffering. He is drawing them into a participation in his own suffering as a participation in the sufferings of Christ, which are not completed. Not completed in the sense that wherever Christ is in his people, and they are persecuted, so that is a persecution which falls upon Christ himself. Not only their suffering in that sense, but their identification with Paul's aspiration in declaring the centrality of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Keep in mind that the apostle in the previous section of this fourth chapter is praying or longing for that open door. He can fold others into this very drama, into this very narrative, the narrative of ultimately the resurrected, risen, and glorified Christ. Paul says, I want you to know all these things, all these things which Tychicus and Onesimus can share with you, communicate to you, which you can hear when this epistle is read to you, Keep in mind, as we noted, this letter was going to be read to the congregation of the Colossians as well as to the congregation of the Laodiceans and the people of Hierapolis. You can meditate on what I am sending to you. You can act upon what I am sending to you. There are ethical instructions here for you to follow. You have opportunity to read and digest this epistle to ponder it, meditate upon it, muse with, think about its, its, its obvious meaning, its superficial meaning, but the depth and the riches of its meaning as well as you penetrate into what it means to be a new creation in Christ Jesus, having died with him, having been raised again with him, having been ushered into the heavenly places in him. That is rich, vibrant penetration and realization as well as actualization of Christ's presence by his spirit in his people. Paul wants to fold the Colossians into his life in Christ as he folds them into Christ's life for them. As Christ lived it for us, Paul and them, as they live it in Christ, Paul and them, as they reciprocally know and understand and are informed about this in Christ life as it is richly and lavishly and wonderfully revealed to them through Christ Jesus and through the apostle in Christ Jesus. Here is this union motif in its most profound aspect. You are being joined unto the Christ who in history did what he did for your sake so that he may now be in you. And that history that he performed is now revealed or performed in your history. The historical, the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth is absolutely essential. The historicity of the incarnation of the Son of God is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Without it, you have no connection to heaven, to salvation, to justification, to redemption. 
It must have been worked out historically so that it can be communicated to you personally. You're not joined to doctrine. You're joined to a person in history. That's what you're united with. It's not abstractions. It's not intellectualisms. This is a real, vital, personal engagement and encounter and realization. It's as sweet and ecstatic as a union of a husband and a wife. That's how real it is. Paul drawing these Colossians into the mystery. You know in Ephesians 5 what he calls the mystery. Ephesians 5 he calls marriage a mystery. Drawing you into the mystery of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well that brings us to our period of a break and we'll stop there and uh, take a breather and then we'll come back and look at Tychicus and Onesimus in greater detail. With respect to these names, uh, we're going to need to be flipping back and forth in the scriptures, so I'll be telling you to turn to a certain passage, and we'll begin with Acts chapter 20, verse 4, but be prepared to do some uh, sword drill here, as they used to call it in uh, Young Life and Youth for Christ circles. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Now, the first name there that Paul has on his list of co-laborers is Tychicus, who is mentioned five times in the New Testament. And in Acts 20, verse 4, it tells you where he was from and where was he from. Ben, he was from Asia. Now, does that mean the Gobi Desert? I don't think so. <laughs> Asia Minor. It is Asia Minor, as the province of Asia Minor was labeled during the time of the Roman Empire, which is southeastern modern-day what country? Turkey. Turkey, modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> so, Tychicus is from Asia Minor. And that verse also says that he accompanied Paul. He accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey, where he joins the apostle in Greece, and then goes on with the apostle to the end of that third missionary journey in Jerusalem. Now, as I indicated when I made the comment, he joins the apostle during the third missionary journey. He didn't begin third missionary journey with Paul because Paul begins that journey in Antioch, Acts 18.22. You don't need to turn to it. I'll simply mention that that third journey began in Antioch where actually the first and second missionary journeys began in Antioch. Now, why did the first missionary journey in particular 
begin in Antioch. But why Antioch? What was what was distinctive about Antioch? Yeah, it's the church that sent them, but why Antioch? Why not Jerusalem? Because that's where we got our name, right? In Antioch, Christians were first called Christians. So Paul and Barnabas went from that location originally, and they came back and used it as a jumping-off point for the second time, which led to the split between Paul and Barnabas. And then the third missionary journey also departs from Antioch, Antioch being the uh, the home of the people of the way, borrowing from Jesus' declaration, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, all right, this lengthy third missionary journey, it's lengthy in terms of uh, travel uh, distances and also in terms of time, it begins in Antioch, and Tychicus is going to come into it. But after Antioch, Paul goes overland. Barnabas goes overseas. He goes by boat back to Cyprus with John Mark. But Paul goes overland back through his home territory in Tarsus and then beyond to Galatia. Now, you might think about that with respect to this letter. If he went overland through Galatia, which is north-central Asia, Asia Minor, or Turkey, sometimes the whole region is called Asia Minor, but it's actually broken down into provinces, and Asia Minor was just the name of the one province. And you're going overland, why didn't he drop down into Colossae? Well, we don't know why he didn't, but he did go more north-central, through uh, Asia Minor, and then <clears throat> reached Ephesus at the end of that overland journey. And, yes, go ahead, Randy. Last week you mentioned an extra missionary journey. That would have been the fourth one, not yes. the third one. Yes, not the third one. That's, okay. that's, that's the one that we suggested comes after he's released from the first Roman imprisonment. So all of this is before the Roman imprisonment. And he comes to Ephesus, as I indicated, in Acts 18.24. And he stays in Ephesus. How long did he stay? More than three years. Altogether, about three years, yes. The text in Acts 19 says two years, but he was back and forth probably when you add it all together, three years all together. That's chapter 19, verse 10. He remains in Ephesus, speaking in the school of Tyrannus, but leaves Ephesus to go to Macedonia, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on his second missionary journey, he had also gone to Macedonia. This is when he received the Macedonian call. It was the first time that Christian missionary had gone across the Hellespont, which is the bridge between <coughs> Turkey and uh, Macedonia, and made his way uh, to uh, Philippi, to Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, and so on. So he goes back to Macedonia, 
and he retraces his steps of the second missionary journey to Greece in chapter 20, verse 2. We don't know much about the details there, but he's back in verse 3 of chapter 20 of Macedonia again, so he's retreated, he's retraced his steps, he's gone to Greece, he's retraced his steps back to Macedonia, and now it is in Macedonia, chapter 20, verse 4, that Tychicus joins him. Now, in verse 5 of this 20th chapter of Acts, he goes ahead with others to Troas, which is not the same as Troy, incidentally. It's a separate city. In in verse 5, which on the northwestern tip of modern-day Turkey, so it's back in Asia Minor in general. And Paul joins them in verse 6, sailing from Philippi. He goes down the coast, then to Miletus, and here is where he calls the Ephesian elders to himself in verse 17. Notice he is not in Ephesus when he gives this address to the Ephesian elders. He's in Miletus. And when he finishes that address in chapter 21, verse 17, that's not when he finishes it, but when he finishes the address, then we learn in chapter 21, verse 17, that he went on to Jerusalem where he was arrested and taken to Rome and prison at the end of Acts 28. All right, so Tychicus is a part of Paul's third missionary journey, joining it about halfway uh, through its, shall we say, uh, logistical or its itinerary. He is now, in the writing of the Colossian letter, in Rome with Paul. The question, interesting question is, how did he get there? Well, there are two options, aren't there? He was with Paul in Jerusalem when he was arrested. And so, having been arrested with Paul, he may have been arrested as well. <clears throat> he may have been a fellow prisoner in the literal sense that he was charged with a crime and mutually imprisoned with Paul and on that ship that took the apostle to Rome. Or, having been with Paul at the end of that third missionary journey, when the apostle was arrested, he decided to travel to Rome and be a support to him, even though he wasn't himself imprisoned with him. Can't solve that question. We just know that he is with him, whatever providential circumstances brought him to Rome in the presence of the apostle. But here, in Colossians, but in Colossians 4, 7, which we're looking at, we ask the question, why is he first on the list? Why is he a chosen courier? As you ponder that, why Tychicus commissioned to take this letter? So you're emphasizing his fidelity, he's trustworthy. All of that, I think, would be apparent. 
or obvious. Any of them would have been trustworthy, the possible exception of Demas. Well, where was he from? He's from Asia, He's from Asia Minor, yes. And Colossae is located in Asia Minor. Is it conceivable then that Tychicus was known, if not by face, personally, but known by name to the Christians in Colossae? So he would be a logical choice to take the apostles' greetings and this letter to the Colossian believers. In other words, it makes sense to associate Tychicus with this epistle because he's associated with the region in which the city of the epistle is located, possibly hinting at some familiarity of the church with Tychicus himself, either in person or by reputation. Yes? Also, when uh, this is the English translation, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. That sentence reads like the audience already knows who Tychicus is. Because so, Paul doesn't explain who this person is. That's a good observation and, and possibly reinforces what we've been suggesting. All right, now, the next mention of his name is in Ephesians 6. So if you turn forward to Ephesians 6, verse 21, passage that we looked at last week, because it is similar in language to Colossians 4, 3, and 4. Here at the end of Ephesians, Paul names Tychicus as he does at the end of Colossians and uses language in this farewell portion of the Ephesians letter, which is very similar to the language of the farewell portion of Colossians. Interesting, we have this language about praying on Paul's behalf, the mystery of the gospel, and him hoping that he can have opportunity of proclaiming it. It is similar in Ephesians and and Colossians, I'm sorry. And then he mentions Tychicus in both instances. Now, we know that Tychicus in Colossians is carrying the letter to the Colossians as well as the letter to Philemon. And that's often why Colossians and Philemon are put together in commentaries. They probably would be better placed closer together in the canon of Scripture, but nonetheless, this is the order which we have, and so we'll deal with it. We know from Colossians 4 that he's carrying the epistle. Do we know from Ephesians 6.21 that he's carrying that epistle? We don't really know. Notice verse 22 of Ephesians 6. I have sent him. There's that word that Paul uses in Colossians 4.8. I have sent him that he may comfort your hearts. Not encourage this time, but comfort your hearts. Well, <clears throat> we can't know for sure whether Tychicus is carrying the epistle to the Ephesians to the Ephesian elders and the Ephesian congregation. 
But it is interesting to note his participation in the biblical theological drama or narrative of both the epistle to the Ephesians and the epistle to the Colossians, as well as the epistle to Philemon. What Tychicus carries, he reads, he understands. He, in fact, stands inside the drama of the text Paul writes. Tychicus was dead in trespasses and sin. He was crucified together with Christ. He was raised from the dead. The curse of his guilt and sin wiped away when Christ was raised up in victory over sin and guilt and death. He is a new creature in Christ Jesus as Paul the Apostle is a new creature in Christ Jesus as the Ephesian and Colossian Christians are new creatures in Christ Jesus. So in part for this reason, Paul commissions him as his courier to carry his letters to the churches of Asia Minor, which makes him a participant in the biblical theological narrative of death, resurrection, and new creation in Christ Jesus, but also a joint participation in the narrative of the Christians in Asia Minor. He's the bearer of the written revelation, and he possesses that meaning of that revelation in himself so that he identifies with those in the churches to whom he carries the revelation of the word of God in their death, resurrection, and new creation in Christ Jesus too. He participates in the drama, in the narrative drama of the apostle. He participates in the narrative drama of the Colossian Christians, which is the same as the narrative of the apostle. This is a dramatic narrative interface. Now, the next passage is 2 Timothy 4.12. Tychicus, at the end of 2 Timothy, where Paul says he has been sent to Ephesus. Now, here we need greater context to understand the scene. Is Paul in prison at the end of this letter? Yes, he is, as he indicates in verse 17 of chapter 1. He is in Rome once again. Notice verse 8 of chapter 1. He is a prisoner. That is repeated in verse 16. He is in chains. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, one final time, I suffer hardship in, even to imprisonment as a criminal. So he's in Rome. He is in prison, he is in chains, he is bound. Is this the same imprisonment as that which he refers to when he's writing the letter to the Colossians? In other words, is Paul's Colossian imprisonment the same as his imprisonment in Second Timothy? 
Well, here in Second Timothy, Tychicus is sent to Ephesus, perhaps to take Timothy's place, who had been there, according to 1 Timothy 1.3, and had gone elsewhere. Sent to Ephesus because, once again, he was known to the churches of Asia Minor, perhaps carrying at this point the letter to the Ephesians, though that would appear to belong to the first Roman imprisonment. As we have suggested in our discussion of Colossians 4, 2 to 6, the pastoral epistles here, Second Timothy, appear to be written from the standpoint of Paul's fulfilling his yearning for the open door and opportunity of a further missionary tour to declare the mystery of the gospel of Christ beyond Rome and his prison cell, his initial Roman prison cell once more. The pastoral epistles look back on the expansion of Christ, of Paul's mission, mentioning opportunities Paul had in Macedonia. Turn back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 3. 1 Timothy 1, 3. I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. Notice he's loose. He's free to go to Macedonia. In 2 Timothy 4.20, we had our fingers on that one. Notice he says, he left Trophimus sick at Miletus. He was free to go to Miletus. And finally, looking down at verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, what does he say about Titus? I left you in Crete. So, there's information in Titus and 1 Timothy that Paul was, by the grace of God, able to redeem the time for which he longed and prayed in the letter to the Colossians and had opportunity to go beyond his Roman uh, imprisonment or incarceration and was therefore released to another fourth missionary journey. Summing it up, in 2 Timothy, he is back in Rome. In 2 Timothy, he is a prisoner back in Rome. But in 1 Timothy and Titus, he talks about moving abroad in the Greco-Roman Mediterranean basin. A number of locations are given. We mentioned Macedonia. We mentioned Miletus. He also lists Corinth and Troas and Crete in Titus. That's a broad itinerary. Romans 15 has his longing to go to Spain. Did he in fact fulfill that longing and end up in Spain as a part of his release from that first imprisonment? We don't know for sure, but his mention of Spain and his desire to go there is suggestive. Even as his mention of wanting to have this broader open door in Colossians is suggestive because we can prove that it was fulfilled. So there are two Roman imprisonments according to the construction of the whole biography of the apostle. The first Roman imprisonment at the end of which he longs and hopes for an opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ after his release. Second Roman imprisonment is the fulfillment of that longing. That hope is accomplished with notations from 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus 
details of him looking back on it, even though he is at the end of Second Timothy once again imprisoned and in bonds in Rome. Randy. So how come we don't hear much about this? Like when you see the missionary journeys in, in the Bibles, none of this is ever mentioned, right? The dominant view among critical scholars in the New Testament is that this is myth, this is fairy tale. In other words, a fourth missionary journey and a release and a second Roman imprisonment is an invention because Paul did not write 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus. Oh, so it's based on he's not the author of those books. Based upon the fact that he, he's not, that those books are pseudonymous, that is, somebody wanted to appear to be Paul and wrote the pastoral epistles after Paul had been executed using his name. Did ever give missionary pictures in his Bible? Yes. Do they include the fourth one? No. Virtually no, no uh, <clears throat> missionary traces do it, except if you look for it. You can look for it and see the suggestion of <clears throat> these locations uh, taken out of the of what we just looked for the pastorals. <clears throat> so there are uh, <clears throat> there are some very conservative Bibles that you may find it in. I shouldn't say that no no Bible has a, a map of the fourth journey. Uh, <clears throat> you can put it together from this, but because there's so, so much resistance to it popularly, at least in the modern theological New Testament, the, the, modern New Testament theological world, it's dismissed. Yes, well, it's bizarre that it's dismissed when Paul's, let, Paul's name is on all of these pastoral epistles in the first place. So... <laughs> the author has the right to put his name on the work. Then you, you, the burden of proof is on you to prove that he's fooling you, not, not on him to prove that it's, he's, it, it's him. <clears throat> the challenge is for us then to put all the pieces of the puzzle together in a coherent and consistent way. And I think what I'm proposing is a coherent and consistent way, whether it can be demonstrably proved or not. Uh, <clears throat> we are deducing from the evidence of the pastorals, the second imprisonment. That's what we're deducing on the basis of the clues that we have here. It's kind of like a New Testament detective work. All right, now the last mention of Tychicus is in Titus chapter 3. In the 12th verse of that third chapter, Paul says, I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. There he is. He's moving around again. Now, remember that Titus is an epistle in which he does not mention being imprisoned. Same as 1 Timothy. Where's Nicopolis? Nicopolis is a northern part of ancient Greece on the western coast of Greece, borders the Adriatic Sea. It's in modern-day Croatia, so it's north of the western border of Greece. And either Artemis or Tychicus was to come to Paul as he was going to winter there uh, beside the sea, beside the Adriatic Sea. Now, once again, when 
Paul is writing this epistle, he had been at Crete, which is in the Mediterranean Sea, another large island. And he's free, as we mentioned, at will to uh, take a trip to Nicopolis in Greece for the winter. This means, in my opinion, that Titus was written before 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy also seems to have been written when he was out of prison. So there, in 2 Timothy, is prison. As we've noted here, he definitely is at liberty. Another argument for Titus, the epistle being written outside of prison, as 2 Timothy 4.10 indicates, because Titus had gone to Dalmatia, which is also part of Croatia, a region north of Nicopolis. Ben? In the uh, New King James Version, it says, they showed you, of course. There's a map in the New King James. Good for them. All right, so. Zonalists must have got tired of chasing Paul around. They just wore them, he wore them out. If he wore them out. <laughs> well, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt that uh, he, 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 had a, he had a great physiology, I think, <laughs> for the beatings he took and <clears throat> the shipwrecks he endured and the, so on and so forth. And all, and all the, remember, most of this is on foot. You know, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, if you compile it all together on foot. All right, so reconstructing the last reference here, Titus 3.12. Titus or Artemis take Titus's place in Crete. Titus comes to Paul at Nicopolis. Paul goes to prison. Second time to Rome, Tychicus, Titus, and others join him. Second Timothy 4.10 indicates me, the me in bonds, they join him. Tychicus is then sent to Ephesus. Titus goes to Dalmatia, and Paul is left with Luke in Rome. All right, now that's a little bit complex, I realize, but nonetheless we realize also that the apostles' career is broader than we first understand it if we stop at the end of the book of Acts, if we stop at the conclusion of the third missionary journey. There's more to the story, and the more to the story, though fragmentary, comes from the clues that are given in the pastorals. Right, now that leaves us with the other name here in Colossians 4 in verse 9, and that's the name of Onesimus. Who was Onesimus? He was a slave to whom? He was Philemon's slave. And of course, where did Philemon live? In Colossae. And what was going on in Philemon's house? Church. Church was meeting in Philemon's home. And how did Onesimus get to Rome? He ran away. He ran away, ran away from Philemon. Why did he run away from Philemon? Wanted to be free, I guess. Wanted to be free? No. He might have stolen something. He may have stolen something. Yes, in verse 18 of Philemon, Paul uses the word wronged. 
And there's a tradition that the wrong was theft. And so he had stolen and fled, ultimately ending up in Rome somehow, by, by, by what mechanism we're not told, what happened to him in Rome. He finds Paul. And what else does he find? Or who finds him? Christ finds him, yes. He's, Pardon? I don't imagine he was actually looking for Paul. No, perhaps not. Uh, it, it, it could have been providential or, or accidental, as we say, accidental providence. But um, it's not impossible, you see, that he ran to Rome or he went to Rome because Paul was there and he knew Paul knew something about Philemon. That, that, that is possible. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's more likely that this is uh, this is divine providence guiding his steps there where he wasn't in, intending originally to, to be the, to get to Paul. But he did. And as Marge pointed out, Christ got to him. Christ redeemed him. And one of the way, one of the ways we know that is from the language here in Colossians 4, that he's a faithful and beloved brother. He is a brother in Christ. And so you can look at my series on the epistle to Philemon for more details about this, but I want, in conclusion, I want to note one thing. I want you to note verse 11 of chapter 3 as we're talking about Philemon, or we're talking about Onesimus. Colossians 3.11 says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free man. Here's a beloved brother who was a slave. The name resonates with the message of the epistle. The message of union with Christ folded in to the mystery of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Slaves, as well as free masters like Philemon, they are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. All right, any questions? We'll have the opportunity to go over some of these details about the journeys again as we proceed to the list of the remaining names, and we'll work our way methodically through them in order to increase your understanding of what we know about these friends of the Apostle and the network that they have. To Crete, to Dalmatia, to Croatia or otherwise... Macedonia, notice the wide extent of this Christian network, which is conscious of the gospel of Christ as well as the missionary efforts of Paul and his, his, his companions. This is a, indeed a tremendous uh, <coughs> amount of activity on behalf of evangelizing the Mediterranean, Greco-Mediterranean world. So we're in Colossians 4 next week. Pardon? We're still in Colossians 4. We're still stuck in Colossians 4, yes. We're making our way slowly through Christian biographies, according to the Apostle Paul. Hopefully my new King James Version has that journey thing too, but I get a really good... Check the back, right. ...better picture. Yes, uh, thanks to Ben for pointing that out. Well, let's pray. Father, we realize the depth 
of what has been revealed, even in the rhetorical inspiration of it. And we're grateful for what we can know about Tychicus and Onesimus as faithful and beloved brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their lives joined in the mystery of the union of what Jesus has accomplished in his historical story so that their historical story may be redeemed, sanctified, glorified, and exalted. We bless you for your work by your spirit through your apostles and the network of the servants of the apostles in the first century. And we marvel at how your word and your son's grace and truth spread throughout the civilized world. Pray that same blessing for the message of redemption in Christ Jesus for our world. How desperately she needs it, and we pray that she may hear and receive it according to your grace and good pleasure. Bless us in our own understanding of what it means to be part of the mystery of the union with the bride of Christ. And we ask that you sanctify us in that life for Jesus' sake. Amen.